This has been a theme for me my entire career, and DCVC is the apotheosis of that theme, which is that you can have massive transformational impact with private companies if you can harness CapEx and OpEx efficient compute in, in the service of making those transformations. Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at POSI, the number two IVE. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you, focused on venture scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zeka Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. And today's guest is Matt Ocko, a managing partner with DCVC headquartered in Silicon Valley. This episode will include three sections. First, the science. Next, freedom and climate resilience. And last, DCVC. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed chatting with you before, and we have a great show outlined here. First and foremost, I kind of wanted to throw in some exciting news. You mentioned that something on the NASDAQ or something like that? Yeah, one of uh, the companies that we backed from seed, led the A, supported uh, every round up to and through the IPO called Embark Trucks, which in our view is the leading autonomous trucking company in the world. This morning officially moved into um, the next stage of its life as a public company on NASDAQ. Started out as two Canadian immigrants with a hacked up autonomous go-kart just about five years ago and uh, is now a multi-billion dollar public company that is equitably and safely and economically transforming transportation and supply chains across the United States. Oh my gosh, is that not exciting? Five years to an IPO, that is remarkable. Congratulations. Well, it's the it's the team um, that you really want to uh, For sure. congratulate and uh, and hopefully the the beneficiaries of this really positive transformation for economics and and safety of transportation in the US. We're we're just sort of we're just sort of the uh, the doulas of uh, of the process for these uh, for these great companies. Okay, well this is actually a good transition just to tell us more about yourself and so you're with DCVC as a long established fund. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and about them just briefly and then we'll we'll break out into section 1. Well, my um, my wife, who is smarter, nicer, and uh, funnier than I am by a wide margin, likes to say... I may disagree with her, Matt. <laughs> likes to say that um, I and my uh, co-founder at, at DCVC are kids who watched too much Star Trek, were never told that the stuff on the show was supposed to be impossible and then managed to do a good enough job along the way to get billions of dollars to try to make the equitable and human positive and, and transformational vision of, of Star Trek a reality. And I guess if you, if you want to understand where, you know, my, my nerd tribe, uh, as much as I enjoy Star Trek, uh, sorry, Star Wars, I'm, I'm on the record that those are very different visions. Those are very different futures. Star Trek is a depiction of a post-economic future of 
abundance and resiliency and, you know, human achievement. And Star Wars is a vision of kind of the Wild West extrapolated scarcity, slavery, endless, uh, endless conflict and, and perpetual injustice. And what, what gets me up every morning is the fact that it is very possible for pretty modest amounts of initial venture capital and follow-on growth capital to transform trillion-dollar industries and to do so in an equitable and and positive way for for every stakeholder, for economic stakeholders and for the consumers of uh, a company's services and products and for the communities and countries that host those companies and and use those services as well. One of my favorite quotes, uh, I think it was an oil executive who said this, but it was later attributed to a a Saudi um, oil investor, is the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. And I I love the spirit of innovation. I think that is an interesting way of of looking, uh, looking at the world. Although, you know, one of our our, uh, core hopes is that each stage in human advancement from from here on out can proceed with uh, a lot less violence than the uh, the Stone Age into the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. Lovely. Um, I wanted to just give a quick shout out to Alan Cohen, your partner at, at uh, DCVC. He's tremendous, and he was on one of our roundtables, and he spoke highly and introduced us. So I wanted to just say thank you to him and give a shout out. Uh, yeah, Alan is a fantastic individual all around. He is our lead partner and in fact the chairperson of one our one of our companies, Evolve Technology, that we might touch on later today, that is again both profitably and equitably delivering a solution to massively reduce the violence and risk in human societies at scale. Okay, that's great. That's a perfect segue um, to get us started into the sections. We'll go back to that in section three. I'm looking forward. I put, took a note on that. So the science, um, you, let's talk about you a little bit, get, get started. What obviously Star Trek gave you some inspiration for science. Um, w- was that the initial trigger for you to go forward toward physics? And Both my my dad and my mom were incredibly curious and 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 well-read people that had a lot of interests at the intersection of history and anthropology and science. So I grew up surrounded by books and uh and, and sometimes stories directly from leading scientists and academics on the journey that humanity had taken across folks like Archimedes and Newton and Faraday and Maxwell and Einstein and Salk and and other, you know, great folks to the place that we are today. And so this this idea that you this idea that um individuals could be um transformative um, for human progress, mm-hmm. uh, and really bend the curve was, um, was, was pretty, was pretty amazing. And, you know, my mom 
was the source of um, some early education on amazing women who contributed to science but didn't get their due. Folks like Rosalind Franklin, the uh, you know the real discoverer of um, of the structure of uh, of DNA, or Jocelyn Bell, who was the real discoverer of uh, of much of the foundation of modern uh, modern astrophysics. So I think that also inspired in me um, a desire to recognize unheard voices and and make sure that uh, no possible contribution to human progress uh, wherever it was coming from would be uh, would be ignored. It's a good it's a good lesson in um, a good early lesson in the fact that progress, if it's not uh, equitable and inclusive, is is not real progress. Love that. There's a there's almost a social science meets hard science in your mind. It seems. Yeah. Well, my um, <laughs> I, I had a I, I had a, a fun and amazing uh, upbringing that I'm still um, eternally eternally grateful for, and because my dad was an academic. I got to meet a lot of amazing people um, outside of his field at, at great universities. And in my own work, when I talk about standing standing on a mountain of good fortune, um, it's, it's because of that. Mm-hmm. On the shoulders of giants. Certainly on the shoulders of uh, a comfortable middle-class academic family in, in the United States. Well, I think you made great use of all of it. And Tell us about you have. I mean, this to me is not overlooked. Fifty patents. I mean, what what led you into that world of making patents? Uh, I guess, I guess you could say again, it's a, a consequence of of uh, being a nerd. Uh, again, I, my um, my wife likes to joke that DCVC's uh, venture capital is by the nerds for the nerds, so uh, that. Advancements of the nerd shall not perish from the earth, which is kind of a mildly sarcastic uh, repurpose of the uh, of the Lincoln quote. Um, <laughs> the The fact is, if you if you care about if you care about a company and you care about helping it out, then you are going to be hands on in its in the development of its its technology and its operations and its its productization and sometimes if you're really involved that means that you're actually helping move the innovation along and a handful of times in in my career that resulted in being asked to uh, to write up patents I, I'm not sitting in a garage like uh, you know Lemuelson from uh, from MIT uh, dreaming up patents. So the I think it's probably roughly sixty or seventy or maybe more at, at this point. Those, those patents are indicia of being engaged in and caring about company outcomes. Not necessarily that I'm uh, I'm any smarter than than anybody else. Well, that's fair of you to say. It just seems like you've always kept your finger on the pulse of what is relevant and how it can apply and back to tr- the transformation aspect. It's truly inspiring to me. I, I love it. I just love your doing. Would you would you maybe perhaps share just a couple few of those that you're somewhat proud of at the moment? You know, I I, I guess actually the ones that the ones that I, I think are probably that I'm proudest of 
overall are still in the process of being uh, being filed. But some some of the you know, I see some of the patents tell you how long stuff actually takes to evolve in in the real world. So you know one one patent which goes all the way back to the early 2000s was a product of my interest in in financing and supporting the advancement of distributed supercompute. Oh my, yes. In other words, making supercomputers out of um, locally and remotely networked PCs because today's version of Hadoop or or uh, Spark or something like that. Uh yeah, just to some, to some extent, extent, really the precursor to what the the precursor to what you know scientific supercomputers look like mm-hmm. today. You know the the difference between you know uh, Microsoft or Amazon or Google data center with ultra high speed networking and custom ASIC chips and um, uh, and densely packed CPUs and a supercomputer is actually not that much. And I was investing in and pushing along that technology because if you can compute things, you can understand them in software. You can simulate them. You can expect them. Mm-hmm. You can conduct experiments, if you will, in silico. You can fail fast and fail cheaply. And it's a way of shortcutting this very painful historical human journey from transforming science into a usable technology. And in fact, it's increasingly a shortcut for the human scientific journeys because the more hypotheses you can test without, for example, having to build a a giant particle accelerator or a you know, 100,000 square foot wet lab, chock full of, you know, mildly disgruntled postdocs, you can do things more quickly and you can do things more capital efficiently. And so to come back to some of your questions about the heart of, 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 of DCVC, this has been a theme for me my entire career. And DCVC is the apotheosis of that theme, which is that you can have massive transformational impact with private companies if you can harness CapEx and OpEx efficient compute in in the service of making those transformations. And we see this today in, in everything from material science that supports climate tech breakthroughs to drug discovery uh, and vaccine production that's that's helping beat back uh, the COVID pandemic to the discovery and, and implementation of of new, cheaper, cleaner energy sources. I'm so excited about about the companies that you're supporting. Now, you said to me in the pre-show, and and you know I'm going to mention this um, that you're you yourself personally are. If I I don't want to paraphrase this incorrectly, but you said I believe you said uh, you're on the hunt looking for people who are smarter than you, and I keep thinking, you know, who's smarter than this guy? You know, I, I appreciate your humility, but that that's such an amazing mindset. Tell us more about that. It's a mindset born from empirical data. <laughs> okay, I mean, fair enough. Uh, I mean, I I went to 
I went to public schools uh, for a big chunk of uh, of my life, and uh, I was fortunate to go to some, uh, you know, magnet or I guess they're called gifted and talented public schools in some places. And there were, you know, I'll just give you an example. Sure. There were, you know, in in my um, in my biology and my my chemistry classes, for example, um, there were, you know, folks from non-white um, immigrant families who were, you know, holding down a job and taking care of a family or, you know, uh, uh, young African-American women who were taking 45-minute or hour-long uh bus rides from some other place and uh, maybe not living in, in family circumstances that were most uh, conducive to studying. And I, I'm a reasonably bright person. I'm not saying I'm an idiot, but they kicked the living crap out of me, not just academically. I mean, it wasn't about, you know, rote memorization. They were genuinely smarter than I was. Um, and my my experience has been that there are lots of talented people who routinely dwarf um, all of the intellectual firepower that you can put together um, in in a VC firm. And, you know, so modern business school folks like to talk about a quote unquote servant leader model yeah. that's sometimes hollow or used cynically. But the core notion in in deep tech VC that you're you're backing people smarter and better and more resilient and and uh, with with greater leadership qualities than yourself is exactly how you make money and improve the world at the same time. I see. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I love that you're you've been promoting this for for so long, and um, I, I kept thinking of uh, my friend. Uh, uh, Jay Malik, who started um, a deep tech firm as a new kind of Gen Z uh, VC, he just closed his fund and their focus on ethics and also a little bit, I'd say humanity, this aspect, I think it's an emerging trend. We're probably going to see more and more of this as things get more complex. I'm, I'm glad you're kind of, you've paved the way for so many people. I, I'd like to acknowledge that. Uh, well, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I guess my, my biggest open source contribution uh in in this arena is the phrase deep tech which came out of um a uh, uh a series of um lunches and and chats way back in the in the late 90s is that right with fellow- it was a, it was a, a group discussion that you know to to name this arena no it was fellow a fellow deep tech investor steve jervitson and uh, i was trying to describe what we did, you know, every day, and uh, uh, other than um, uh, other than paraphrasing the old, uh, you know, Pinky in the Brain uh, uh, cartoon, you know, what what do we <laughs> <laughs> what instead of you know what what do we do what do we do uh, what are we doing tonight, Brain? You know, same thing we do every night. Uh, and my joke was, you know, try to save the world. <laughs> um, 
we're trying to describe this this intersection of advanced compute and cutting edge science um, and technology applied to transform trillion dollar industries um, equitably and profitably. Yes. That is is the heart of everything I've tried to do in in, in my career, and and certainly is is the absolute heart of DCBC. And so I said, you know, it's, it's you know, it's like deep tech. That's 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 the phrase. And um, uh, we were, you know, ping ponging this um, in emails back in I don't know ninety nine, uh, two thousand. So this is kind of so twenty twenty two year old uh, twenty two year old term that um, you know, if I were selfish, I wish I'd trademarked. Sure, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a trip! By, by the way, uh, I'm I'm um, uh, at at the moment I'm. Uh, I'm in New Zealand. I was actually down here for another IPO of ours, Rocket Lab, Whoa. which is democratizing access to space. Um, it was another relatively rapid journey from a farm kid um, with uh, with an idea to a multi billion dollar company that's that's the only organi- private organization besides SpaceX putting satellites in in actual orbit for demanding customers. Um, It seems to me that these exciting IPO opportunities you have is maybe something that's overlooked in terms of how the general VC market may look at deep tech, maybe thinking these take longer or they have different runway attributes, etc. But is this something you see quite often, these companies just propelling into IPOs in the deep tech area? I would say this is a relatively recent phenomenon and it it does have a lot to do again with the work that DCVC has done over the past 12 years in helping accelerate the tools for advanced large-scale compute not every company we've done not every company I've done in a nearly 30-year VC career is an IPO, a lot of them got acquired by Amazon and Microsoft and Google and, you know, a variety of chip companies, places like Intel. And all of those pieces went into making advances in compute that make even complex problems in the physical world amenable to inspection and simulation. And if you can pull 90%, of what used to be the cost of a transformational company off the balance sheet, so to speak, then you can have, you know, relatively swift marches to public markets from deep tech companies that are more transformative and more lucrative more early. And I, I think uh, Pivot Bio, um, uh, which um, we, we'll talk about hopefully a little bit later, is a great example of that. Fantastic. Um, there, there are a few others also in the climate resiliency space. Yeah, let's let's move into that. I think that's great. And I'd also like to maybe just 
put a put a note on SPACs as well, if you'd be willing to cover that for a moment. Freedom and climate resiliency. Um, you yourself right now are very passionate about clean tech, climate tech. You have prob- presumably been passionate about clean tech for some time. Is that correct? Yes. And can you tell me a little bit about your history with clean tech? Because I di- actually didn't, we didn't cover that in terms of preparing. Yeah, I think my my primary history has been uh, with it um, has been trying to support the foundational compute capability, not just compute, but storage, the chips that need to go in, you know, uh, the servo motors of robots that make synthetic biology affordable, all of the precursors. Yeah. Um, because um, I was I was concerned going back to one of my first forays into clean tech long before it was popular, long before even the the, the brilliant John well, Dora was talking about. What year are we, circa maybe two thousand four, two thousand? No, 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 no. Nineteen ninety. Late 1994. Oh my gosh, Matt. That's incredible. You're blowing my mind. That's so incredible. Okay. So it was an unhappy experience and that informed the next roughly, you know, uh, 15 years of my journey trying to reduce the cost of these clean tech and, and green tech um uh, uh, companies. Wow. So it, this company, um, uh, was, was founded by a really visionary and, and capable, um, immigrant entrepreneur who had spent some time doing the complex, ugly software that helped power plants decide when to conduct maintenance Mm -hmm. and it it was a a crap show and most of them didn't really use the software or they bought it for you know tens of millions of dollars and ran it on you know aging mainframes um and still made bad decisions and he and a very small team built very impressive software, which actually ran on early client server infrastructure. So it ran on, on, on inexpensive PCs and relatively inexpensive, you know, uh, uh, servers from companies like sun in the back. And it optimized power plant maintenance. What was online, what was offline, the, improved efficiency of upgraded and replaced parts so flawlessly that it actually simultaneously improved the operating margin of a big nuclear or um, hydropower um, uh, or or even, you know, uh, uh, an evil old coal plant while dramatically reducing emissions, um, while improving um, overall um, 
energy utilization. So it delivered more power for less money at lower uh, with fewer emissions on almost any thermal power plant that you could point it at and a significant chunk of hydropower plants. Incredible. I mean, this is ni- 1994. And, and, and it oh, was, yeah. was there a wave of clean tech, like even in the dot-com, was there kind of a, no, like a, no, this was, a, this was before the dot-com boom. This is before, uh, before, you know, um, before even Al Gore started writing articles. Well, I was going to say, maybe maybe we should attribute you to starting Clean Tech Point Five O or something like that, because I don't know. I mean, that's pretty early. That's incredible. Well, so, you were already thinking it in those terms. So, so what happened was all the power plants patted us on the head and said, we don't really care in the end, now that we, now that we think about it, we don't really care that much about being more efficient and hmm. uh, it's okay if we still run things in a completely shoddy um, in a completely shoddy way. And so good old monopolies. <laughs> well, yeah. And in some cases they weren't even monopolies. So this was an example of, okay. this was an example of, of an efficiency problem because if the company had had, you know, a huge chunk of open source to write its code and it was, you know, using AWS or, or Azure or Google Compute instead of having to buy what were still very expensive Sun servers and very expensive Oracle or Sybase database licenses to store information. They could have lived into the first wave of power deregulation that actually wasn't that many years into the future and and offered these folks an economic solution you know kind of like feeding a dog a pill right here's your delicious make more money cheese with a with the societal you know, uh, uh, the societal benefit slash heartworm pill. Uh, <laughs> it's, right, isn't that right, Maslow's right. heart? Maslow? No, that's not Maslow. There's another one. There's a, another uh, uh, litmus test or something like that. <laughs> it, it, exactly. So they they could have they could have had a massive transformational impact. Yeah. Pretty early on on the you know whole climate ledger, if you will. They, it was just too damn expensive for them to, you know, continue to be developing and supporting their software with relatively slow sales. Um, and it was very, very costly for them in terms of people and in terms of gear to simulate their advanced algorithms that understood how to move things around um, in, in – uh, in power plant infrastructure. So if they'd had a lower cost of compute and a lower cost of software development, they would have been around today. And that was a very epiphanic moment for me as an investor. So for me, it said, you, you need to reduce, reduce the cost of, you know, developing these kind of companies reduce the cost of that intersection of science and technology in the service of society. Because if you don't reduce costs, this is still going to happen 20 years from now. 
Yes, I see. Okay, this was your eye opener to that. And I just have to say, it's quite. I'm quite well versed in the world of VC and impact. I feel, but what I'm noticing from this call and our in our initial conversation is just how complex you you um, embrace. And what, what just how many complexities you br- embrace within your own problem set? So I know we wanted to talk about security, scarcity, and water. These other attributes of industrial impact, etc. Uh, how how do you now current like twenty years? Fast forward twenty years later, how are you seeing yourself evolve through that time and looking at impact in ways others maybe are overlooking? I think it is very dangerous to have a top down messianic approach to climate resiliency. Can you give me a couple examples to that? Yeah, or maybe I would say an intrinsically privileged approach. I mean, I've spent time on the ground building companies in India and China earlier in my career. I, I, you know, was in and out of China long enough to remember when, you know, um, Shenzhen was mostly a, you know, uh, a fishing village with a tiny handful. Oh my, we'll wrap it. Tiny handful of, of, of skyscrapers. Um, and I remember when, you know, one of the major kind of software metropolises uh, outside of, uh, outside of, you know, um, uh, New Delhi was a, a you know, single uh single three-star uh hotel and uh, a couple of uh dusty roundabouts is that now bangalore so <laughs> it's, uh, it's gurgon um uh ordinary you know hard-working aspirational folks all over the world want to do better for themselves and their families and their loved ones for for their for their town for their for their region for their country don't want to live in the dark eating, you know, um, recycled insect protein. Like something, <laughs> that, that's too funny. Like some, yeah. Like something out of the movie Snowpiercer <laughs> or Star, um, or Star Wars, perhaps. <laughs> right. Because, because somebody who, somebody who routinely drives their, you know, Gulfstream jet, down the road, taxis down the road to Whole Foods right, yeah. to nibble on uh, nibble on you know fresh vegan delicacies. Yeah, that's right. Thinks that they deserve to live in the dark. We we all need to make sacrifices. That's that's, that's a that's that's a it's a zero sum game approach. It will be rejected. It already has been rejected by a lot of emerging economies heck it's it's been rejected by you know um a large proportion of red state um voters in the united states if you want to drive climate resiliency you have to show corporations that they make money in the relatively near term by doing so and you have to show people that it doesn't involve the abandonment of their aspirations to do better That's right. for their family. I couldn't agree more. And and so that, that means if you're asking people to change their behaviors in any way, 
there have to be incentives. So if you want people to change their behaviors, you have to say, well, you know, hey, uh, here is cleaner, cheaper water, food, you know, safe housing, uh, secure, uh, secure society, secure, well-run uh, uh, schools, more, you know, economic um, opportunity, lower costs of, 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 of doing business, um, better ways to build industrial products. If you don't deliver that in lockstep or even as a partial precursor to attacking broader, broader climate problems, people, I think, appropriately um, uh, and tragically react negatively to, to, to the bigger, broader solutions, and they oppose them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as, as much as people va- valorize um, uh, uh, Greta Thunberg, yeah. um, they also, you know, a huge portion of the global population doesn't like being, uh, being lectured to um, by somebody who grew up in a safe, prosperous right. uh, society. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point to to have empathy. People who are, are in privileged positions, truly, truly, that's that's right. Um, okay, well, I, I think one of the the biggest things. This isn't more so just to kind of try to poke holes in your approach because I I think you're doing a tremendous job, and I want to congratulate you again here on you know in this session. Uh, I would would maybe in terms of what audience members can take that are let's say. Uh, immersing themselves uh, in deep tech today for the first time and they're looking at deals, how would you suggest looking through the lens of a higher ethical standard or something to try to systematize um, moral moral imperatives? How, how would you suggest that? Or how do you suggest that? Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think this comes back to the heart of what DCVC does. So if you want to transform a, a trillion dollar industry with new systems that are, that are more profitable, higher ROI for all of the stakeholders, and you also want it to be equitable for all of the stakeholders, um, you, you have to deliver it in a time frame that's, that's meaningful for the stakeholders. So, you know, the, the number one ethical lens is don't invest without, you know, um, uh, don't invest without uh, actually delivering a 360 degree impact. Because as much as, you know, folks who want to, you know, improve are uh, improve the climate situation and and by the way beyond climate you know improve the improve the environment including yeah. you know addressing things like the the horrible um, uh, plastic waste problem and the horrible synthetic fertilizer and ocean dead zone uh, problem as much as they complain about big bad old corporations, you know, I, I call it externality dumping, saying, oh, yeah, you know, somebody else will take care of this pollution. 
CO2 problem is, uh, you know. Tragedy of the commons. Exactly. If you're just playing a different movie of externality dumping and you say, well, here, here's something that I'm, I'm doing, but, you know, by the way, it will destroy the textiles industry in, in Vietnam. Yeah. And, exactly. you know, and, and put, you know, 11 million people out of work and knock them back into poverty. That's just a different form of externality dumping. Agreed. There's a level of intellectual honesty you're you're suggesting people should really point themselves toward a deeper understanding of themselves, even. Right. And uh, so again, that gets that gets to the heart of what what we do at DCVC, which is Love it. when we invest to transform these trillion dollar industries, whether it's global manufacturing or relieving overstressed global food supplies or or even in on our biotech side, curing previously incurable diseases, it, it has to be done through this 360 degree, or it has to be subordinate to this 360 degree view of, uh, of, of benefit. That's um, and if you do that, then you're always asking the question, are my actions as an investor, are my actions as a technology creator, as an entrepreneur, are they creating resilience, abundance, prosperity, opportunity, freedom, freedom from want, freedom from systems of oppression for all stakeholders? And right. if the answer is, eh, well, you know, <laughs> maybe fair to say that sometimes it can be that it's not always easy to see everything clearly. It's either easier the 2020 hindsight, I guess. Right. And no, look, we're, we're not we're not perfect. We're going to do stuff that, you know, in, inadvertently um, screw something up um, uh, at at, um, at at more than one point in our collective careers. And it is impossible to live in the real world and truly square that circle, uh, if, <laughs> I if, agree. You, if, 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 if you will. Um, by, the, by the way, I want listeners to note that Matt and I are not forgiving ourselves in the open. I am not, at least. I, I don't know about your intentions, Matt, but um, just pointing to the complexities is, I think, also part of our job to, 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 to help mitigate those, but also to highlight that some things are outside of everyone's control, if I'm not paraphrasing you too much. Yeah, I mean, uh, to uh, maybe skipping ahead a little bit, to use the Pivot Bio example, Pivot Bio has delivered a clean, safe, biological replacement um, uh, for synthetic fertilizer. It, okay. it eliminates the, the incredibly polluting and uh, and greenhouse gas emitting Haber Bosch process, and it delivers a solution that grows more food more reliably for more farmers in the United States and ultimately around the world. So this is a company that actually makes farmers more money while helping eliminate the poisoning of lakes and rivers and and indeed you know the whole ocean with fertilizer runoff and at relatively modest scale could pull you know 5% plus of uh currently emitted greenhouse gases off the table okay now 
Matt, I want to I want to force us take with your time. I just I know I'm going to go over here any minute. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to speed us up just a little bit, and I'm going to put your brain through a bit of a forcing function. And I well, well Zach, yeah. before before you do that, okay. pivot pivot's a good example of of how everything is slightly imperfect. Pivot pivot creates more food abundance with dramatically less climate impact in a way that you know is welcomed and understood by even the most um you know uh, a hard-nosed red state corn farmer yeah. in the US exactly but it doesn't solve the food distribution problem it doesn't solve food inequity even in the United States let alone worldwide so solutions by definition will always be partial when they're attacking these giant problems. Agreed. Agreed indeed. And uh, I, I again commend you for that. And and also want to help listeners. This is part of the reason for the show, just to help listeners understand that when you go into the realm of sustainability, the the overall net impact approach from a from a, a, a broader perspective is indeed, I think, the best one. And I, I think you're you're focusing on the Nexus opportunity set, like most of the people on the show. It it's um I, again, I want to highlight your work. Now here, let's go to the forcing function. Um, I don't want you to just spell out, you know, what's the vision, the mission. That's kind of boring. What I want you to do is pick three startups, talk about them quickly, and the sustainability impacts you think that they're um, going forward. Uh, in help in supporting, and then I want to transition quickly out into what the future looks like, um, in from the standpoint of DCVC. Absolutely, we talked about Pivot. Let's talk about Twelve. Twelve is a company that can actually fully recycle CO two emissions, even from some of the most polluting industries on the planet, uh, like uh, uh, um, uh, plastics and and chemical plants. And turn those emissions into directly applicable feedstocks for industrially useful chemicals and materials and even fuels. This is a company that has demonstrated, for example, to the U.S. Air Force that they can produce CO2 neutral, worst case, and potentially CO2 negative jet fuel. They've demonstrated in Mercedes-Benz that the ex- today extremely polluting foamed plastics that make up um, dashboards and other big panels in modern cars can be made CO2 neutral to potentially negative. Wow. Wow. Another company uh, in our portfolio called Kairos uses... Again, that advanced compute that we're fond of and hard science in the form of a unique instrument and massive AI data analysis so that methane emissions, which are a low-hanging fruit for 10% of global greenhouse gas uh, uh, footprint, can be located precisely and cost-effectively shut off. So this is a company that's managed to deliver an economically valuable solution to current energy players that actually has a massive climate impact. 
it's it's having our cake and eating it too. Um, and speaking of methane, um, uh, another company, actually this one originated like Rocket Lab uh, from New Zealand, called CH4, the chemical symbol methane. CH4 Global has figured out what we believe to be the only um, animal safe and human safe and cost effective um, platform for turning seaweed into a way to reduce global cattle methane emissions by up to 90%, which would be another anywhere between you know, five to 10% of global greenhouse gas equivalent off the table. So the TLDR, um, as my millennial friends sometimes say, is there are at least five companies with more coming down the pipeline in DCVC's portfolio alone that have the near-term potential to make money while each pulling 5 to 10% of global greenhouse gas equivalent off the table. Whoa, that is something else. Oh my gosh. And and I just want everybody to note that he is not pitching uh, you know, a fundraise right now. This is just pure excitement. I love this. Right, but here's here's the thing. And and I I you know, all I can do is is implore the audience not to cynically interpret this as as false humility, but 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 a but a call for action. We're we don't think we're the smartest guys in the room. We don't think we see everything. Um, uh, we have lots of smart friends in the VC space and uh, and beyond. And even with multiple billions of dollars under management in a you know tr- multi trillion dollar you know quote unquote you know non bank slash other slash private equity category we're a tiny pinprick and so if our you know fallible uh um uh um, by definition non-omniscient uh team can in less than a decade with a tiny pinpricks worth of of total capital put that many potential wins on the table it means that if other people give a crap we really can change the world we really can deliver resilience and abundance in the face of violent climate change excellent thank you that was so motivational i appreciate it and um i just want to thank you again for being here today matt i i hope to have you back at some point and i'd like to know are there other things you can you want to give in terms of sh- uh, shout outs or anything upcoming events or anything you want to just get kind of other calls to action i don't think anyone can beat that though by the way <laughs> i you know let's 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 end on a high note my friend <laughs> i like it thank you so much truly my pleasure We've had amazing guests on the show, and I'm very grateful for all of your support. The show is now available on pretty much all the platforms. We would love any positive feedback you could give. 
on uh, iTunes especially, leave us a review, and keep listening. Appreciate it.